0: Welcome to Valley Talk. I'm Heather Stark, your host, and we do a lot of different things on Valley Talk, from me just kvetching with a couple of other people's shows to interviewing important people. And today we have an interview with an important person, but a person you may not recognize right off the top of your head. I'm talking about our Secretary of State, Kim Wyman. Welcome, Kim. Well, thank you. It's great to be on the show. And I say that I think a lot of people don't even think about Secretary of State and what that means. So I want to start out by basically talking about that position. I know from some of the the, the cursory research that I did, it's a really diverse job. It's not, okay, this job is ABC. This job of Secretary of State ranges miles from one side to the other. Can you tell me what the job of Secretary of State is, and then we're going to talk about why you chose to do it. Certainly. Uh, So the Secretary of State is
1: responsible for a lot of unrelated parts of state government. Uh, The big four are elections. That's probably the most high profile part of the office. So overseeing the elections across the state, uh, writing the rules for it, um, and uh, doing initiative and referendum petition checks, those types of things. Uh, the second area is corporation and charities filing. So this is really where the public can get information about any for-profit or non-profit corporation in our state, find out about the board of directors, annual report, that type of thing. Uh, The third area is our state library, which is a very diverse library that is mainly a research library for Washington subjects and authors. But also uh, we have specialty libraries like the Washington Talking Book and Braille Library, and we have librarians who are on my staff that are in all of the state correctional facilities and state hospitals. Uh, So that's uh, very eclectic. And then our state's history is in our state archives. So all of our local and state records, uh, like the bills that are signed into law by the governor or a state constitution, are in the the state archives, which is part of my office. And then the other parts of the Secretary of State's office are smaller programs like Address Confidentiality, which is a program for people who are survivors of domestic violence and stalking. And um, we protect their physical address by receiving all of their mail that is sent to a post office box so that when they get um, a, a cell phone or they get a, a power uh, service at their house that their their address on record that is disclosable isn't um, able to be disclosed and we protect them and their families from uh, their perpetrators. So it, it is a very diverse office. <laughs>
0: No. And I'm trying to think, it's not like you go to college and go, okay, I'm going to take a degree in Secretary of State. How do you get the training for all of these responsibilities?
1: Uh, well, you work in public service a long time, I think is the short answer, because I certainly didn't you know, think when I was 17, you know, someday I want to be Secretary of State, so I'll do A and then B and then C. Um, it, it really was from a place of public service for me. I started at uh, down in Southern California where I grew up and worked for a, a, a city, the city of Lakewood, in the recreation department, which turned into a love of public service. I uh, got a couple of degrees in public administration and then. Uh, Uh, Started working in the county auditor's office when we first moved here and um, uh, spent time in the recording division, which is where, you know, people's deeds of trust and and, uh, land records by and large are recorded and put on public record. And then uh, got into the elections director position in Thurston County and spent my, you know, I guess, formative years uh, working in elections and overseeing them at that level, ran for county auditor and then uh, um, was ready to run for secretary of state because the county position of auditor is very similar to the the responsibility of the secretary of state.
0: Mm. When I was a girl 100 years ago, it was not uncommon for military personnel to take on um, uh, public service. When they uh, retired from or left uh, military, seems like over the years that has not been um, as common as it used to be, or maybe we're just not talking about it. but you you have some uh, very close military experience uh, with your husband, and I believe that's what brought you to the state. It absolutely
1: is, yes. My husband uh, enlisted in the Army out of college, and uh, we were stationed in Germany for for about two years, and then he came here to what was then Fort Lewis to be with the 2nd Ranger Battalion, and uh, that's what brought us to Washington. We were expecting my daughter. And I had a very short window of time to interview before I was showing, and uh, um, landed the job. And a good career became a good job became a great career for me. And my husband was wonderful. And he ended up getting out of the army to uh, to allow us to stay here and set down roots and all. And then, what's really great about that story is my daughter now is a captain in the Marine Corps. So yes, we have a a pretty good link to uh, military service in our family.
0: Wow. Um, this is an election year, and so I'm going to be a little cautious about the questions that I ask you, because I want this to be an interview about being Secretary of State, not running for Secretary of State. Mm-hmm. But that being said, you're, you, you're, your position is kind of unique because you run as a Republican. And, you know, let's face it, Washington is not noted for having a lot of state officials who are Republicans. Um, does that make it more difficult to do your job? Does it just not matter once you get the position? How does that work in a in a state where 99.9% of the, of the elected officials are Democrat to be the Republican? Well, I've always been the outlier. It's
1: my lot in life, and certainly politically that has been the case. So when I served and, and decided to run for the county auditor position, which is elected, um, I was the only – Republican in the courthouse for 10 of the 12 years I served uh at that level and then the first 4 years I was at, at state office I was the only executive uh office holder on the west coast in uh uh that was a Republican so it it just for whatever reason is my lot in life it it makes it challenging i think that um you know i look at things like a project we worked on with the county auditors over the last few years called VoteWA. It's a, a database, of voter registration database, and election management system, and it's really revolutionized. Um, our ability to do things like same-day registration. And, and this is a huge victory. This was a very very bipartisan effort. It has had its bumps. It's been a new, new technology, so it has had a few things that have not gone perfectly well in the rollout. But overall, it's working really well. Um, we've had over 16 million ballots sent out, actually more now because we just did the, um, the p- primary ballots, but you know, close to 20 million ballots that have been sent out on the system and about 6 million that have been processed. And this is a huge victory. Yeah. And what's interesting, and I think it's just partisan politics, is that it keeps co- being called into to question as this failure. And it's, it's interesting to me because I look at other comparable systems that have been brought up in the state that are still not even built yet and have spent ten times the money. And, uh, you know, so only, only in Washington could this be a failure is, is what I keep telling myself and, and not worrying really about the partisan politics of it and just trying to do the job. And I, I think that, for me, my roots are from doing the job as an election director and doing it in a nonpartisan way the first 10 years of of doing this work, you really learn the value of staying out of that partisan space in the workplace and keeping that that Mm -hmm. political world out of it. And I think that that's you know, as I look back now on my career, where I've had the success is just focusing on the importance of inspiring confidence in every voter, whether you are a left-wing de- Democrat to a right-wing Republican. I have to convince everybody the election was fair, and you can't be political and do that at the same
0: time. Well, of course, nationally, you know, there's a big brouhaha over a uh, mailing, uh, mail-in uh, balloting, voting, um, is Are the feds at all, has anybody contacted you to say, hey, how has this been successful in Washington, or are we just under the radar? <laughs> oh we're not under the radar no uh, uh the president
1: has definitely uh tweeted quite a bit about his feelings on absentee ballots and vote by mail and uh and the difference between those two things uh and not in a positive way so no it, we're definitely on the national radar but uh you know I just again I try not to to politicize it what what our job is is to inspire confidence so we spend a lot of time talking about the washington experience and the you know history a very low history of voter fraud in our state and and we have detected it in small numbers and we are prosecuting those cases. And, you know, so, so we just, we spend our time talking about the, the success of our vote by mail program here in, in our state. And again, try to take the partisanship out of it and really focus on how we can serve our voters best. Mm-hmm. And
0: you do feel that that serves voters best here.
1: I do. Um, you know, I was here in the 2004 governor's race that, you know, 16 years later is is just as contentious as it was then. Uh, half the state still mm-hmm. believes that, you know, Dina Rossi was robbed and half the state believes Christine Gregoire won the election. And you'll never convince either side otherwise. Um, so with all of that said, that election was really where our state saw the challenge of having a lot of people vote by mail and trying to do a poll-side election simultaneously. And really there's a point where um, when about 60% of your voters, every you know, 6 in 10 of every voter is getting a ballot by mail, you can no longer do both elections well without putting a lot more money and resources in it. And we hit that point um, and cut over in 2005, and I think was a very good move for our state because we were able to develop a seasonal workforce at the county level that came back every year these were mostly retired people who were um, really good at their jobs and really were able to conduct um, elections that we could reconcile elections that we could account for every single ballot that was returned and tell you whether it was counted or not and why if it was rejected uh, the, the county commission or the county canvassing board rejected it so it's uh, it's a system that I think is is much more secure than we were in 2004, and much better accountability and uh, a better audit trail, and and holds up well. But um, but you know, make no mistake, that was that took a lot of uh, pain and suffering to get there. And you know, I think as we're looking at what's happening nationally, that's my biggest concern is how other states are going to get to the place that Washington is in the short period of time left.
0: Yeah, because we've heard some pretty disastrous stories. Do you feel that? And I'm assuming that you weren't necessarily instrumental in in that, but perhaps you were. Um, but do you feel that somehow or other Washington was just better prepared, or was it luck of the draw, or how how did we go manage to uh, go through that period? without more brouhaha like we're seeing nationally right now, do you think?
1: Well, we took a lot more time. I, I think that that's a real c- critical element. We really started in the 1990s, uh, specifically 1993, when any voter in the state could become a permanent absentee voter, meaning they would they would automatically be sent a ballot every time we had an election and that they were eligible for. Um, so this allowed counties to to ramp up the you know, the facilities they needed to to process those ballots. It would help them get enough staff to do that, uh, have the controls in place to be able to account for all those ballots, have the security measures like a signature check on each envelope. All of those things took time to build out. And, you know, our state, we started doing that in 1993 by about 1998. Many counties were at 60% or more of their ballots um, being mailed out as as absentee ballots. And like I said, it came to a real, I think, came to a head in in 2004 when um, it just was very apparent that that as a as a state, we were having trouble doing both elections at the same time, and so um, that was also I think people would remember when the Help America Vote Act by Congress, um, the bill that was put into law after the Rossi or excuse me the Bush v. Gore uh, presidential race, and there were a lot of requirements at polling places that went into effect, like having a machine. For people who needed assistance, uh, somebody uh, you know was living with a disability and needed to have a machine to vote their their ballot. The requirements at the polling places were getting so onerous in 2004-2005 that um, counties were really having trouble being able to do everything well. And so um, we cut over in 2005, and it still took our state five years to move to complete vote by mail. So you know our transition was. 15 to 20 years in the making. So the reason our presidential primary went so well is that we just had a lot of time to be ready for it. And even with all of that, COVID is now, the COVID-19 environment is changing everything for every election official in the country. So um, our counties right now are working very hard to figure out how we can keep our voters safe, how we can keep our election workers safe, and still conduct our election in a, in a vote by mail environment. Hmm.
0: Okay, I would think that it would be less of a concern when you're doing vote by mail because you're not you getting would, them all together in, uh, you you know, in a facility. Yep.
1: But the, the challenge is that um, what you've done in a vote by mail environment is you're centralizing the processing of ballots. So back in the olden days when we had polling places here in Washington, you know, we would have thousands of individual poll sites open on election day and voters would go to the polling place near their house or, you know, near their office, depending on where they were, you know, registered, and they would go and vote and uh you had election workers throughout the day that were processing those ballots and getting them re- you know getting them in the ballot box and then at election night they'd bring them to the county courthouse and those ballots would be counted and you know by about one o'clock in the morning in a presidential election, you'd know who the winner was um now in a in a vote by mail environment, instead you have a centralized location that all of the the ballots are either mailed to or are picked up in drop boxes and brought to. And so you have a concentration of workers. That's really the same size workforce, just about that you had for polling places. So you have, in some cases, our bigger counties have hundreds of people in a centralized location working shoulder to shoulder processing ballots. That's not going to work this fall, <laughs> you know. So King County, for example, uh, you know, in a seasonal, they have seasonal workers that come in for an election this size, anywhere from three to five hundred people that they bring in to, to process ballots. Um, Even our mid-sized and smaller-sized counties are bringing in large uh, groups of people to to work on those ballots. And so this is work, like I said, is typically done, uh, you know, visualize a six-foot banquet table and, you know, putting six people around that table, processing stacks of ballots and and looking at the signatures or, or, you know, taking out ballots out of envelopes. All of that processing now has to have six feet of, of distancing. All of those workers have to have... Uh, personal protective gear. There has to be um, all the sanitizing, all of the things we've all been doing for the last six months. We're going to have to do that in in those work facilities. And some cases, those counties don't have enough space to do that work. So they're going to have to acquire more space. They're going to have to rent out a building, maybe um, move those operations off-site. And so that's really what our counties are, are focusing their attention on right now, is how do we still process those ballots in in an efficient and timely manner, but make sure that those workers are safe. And then if that's not enough, most of those workers are in the high-risk age group most of our seasonal workforce is over 65 because these are retired people. This is a great part-time job for them. It's a little extra money, and it gives them that satisfaction of doing a, a really important civic duty. And now many of those workers won't be able to come in and work in the August primary or the November general. So not only are election officials scrambling to get enough space and equipment and, um, and, and personnel to work the election, they have to work you know now backfill their seasonal workers that have been there for a few years, have a lot of experience and training, and then they have to have backups to those workers because those workers might get exposed to the virus and all have to go home for two weeks to be quarantined. So this election, it's just a lot of moving parts, and uh, and our state is ahead of the curve because we're vote-by-mail, because we already have those processes in place, because we have that experience. Um, But states that have a a traditional polling place model or a vote vote center model, boy, they're scrambling to get, get things in place to keep their voters and workers safe.
0: Yeah. Well, and it's such a huge job no matter how you do it. Um, one of the things that was crossing my mind is, you know, with our unemployment rate so high, maybe maybe you'll have applicants who want to work the election this year that are not in that high-risk group. Maybe you'll have a, a, a turnout of, of people who think that this will really be a, a good way to not just do their civic duty, but to uh, fill in the coffers during during the, these high unemployment rates. So who knows? You You may be surprised, I suppose.
1: Um well, well actually I'm glad you mentioned I'm glad you mentioned that real quick before we go into the next point is mm-hmm. we're actually doing a, an effort an outreach effort to try to recruit people to work um in at the counties across the state and really trying to partner with local businesses um corporations in our state uh, big and small because we are going to, going to need a, a pretty robust workforce uh to work the election because remember it's not just election day It's uh, ballots went out yesterday and are going out statewide in the next couple of days. So we need election workers for the 10 days, 20 days before election day, and then another 10 to 20 days after election day. So we have a good month to two month period of time where we need a large group of workers to come in. And the more skilled, the better in terms of computer knowledge and things. And uh, we're partnering with the counties and trying to get the word out to any organization we can that uh, if you have uh, workers that are available Available, we uh, we can put them to work, and these are paid positions too. They're not all volunteer.
0: Yeah, you should let the census know. <laughs> <laughs> the census is time <laughs> seriously. Um, yeah, that's a good idea. Census- the census work um, is supposed to, well, of course, it was supposed to end long before now, but the COVID virus has put a glitch in everything. And um, right now, I think the last time I spoke with somebody at census, they were looking at October before they finished the, their enumerator jobs. Um, but then they're done with the enumerator mm-hmm. jobs. And so, yeah, that, that might be mm-hmm. a, that's a, a really, good fit. That's a good yeah. idea. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> we, we will reach out to yeah. them. That is a good idea yeah and my, the demographics that you described, I think, are the people that I've seen working for census. It's people who basically want to do something for their community, also would like a little extra jingle in their pockets and uh, and have the time to do that, so. Mm-hmm. You know, sounds like a good fit to me. The thing that obviously our our radio station serves a, a more rural area than uh, I always I, I always get on my high horse whenever I interview somebody. You know that I really need to let everyone know that Seattle is not the state. <laughs> it is a place within the state, and that there is plenty of other state around. Um, but when you're from the, some of the the rural areas like we are, um, you tend to kind of get clumped in there and. I've made it my goal to interview some of our state officials like you and uh, let you know here we are. We're, we're part of this too. When we're talking elections and especially the mail-in elections, how do you see that benefiting or do you see it benefiting rural areas um, more than necessarily the urban areas?
1: Well, you know, I, I think that this is one of those Maybe partisan glasses kind of moments where people look at things through their partisan glasses and and they maybe uh as you mentioned uh we might be a little seattle centric in our media coverage in this area and uh and people look at those urban centers, but I think vote by mail is one of those um um uh, Types of election that really serve rural voters well, uh, because you're you're letting people vote when it's convenient for them. And I, like I said, I think a lot of times we focus on that urban core. That well, you know, people are busy and they're working and everything. Well, you know, you think of our our urban part. Or excuse me, our rural parts of the state. Um, you get into Eastern Washington, for example, where you have the wheat harvest right at election time. Um, you know, and I say that as a, as a non. Farmer, so I might have that a little off, but you know there are there are times where uh, rural communities have very different um, demands on their time and their availability, and I think that the nice thing about voting by mail is you have a 20-day window to decide when it's convenient for you and your family to vote. And one of the things that was really good a few years ago is um, uh, then Senator uh, Kirk Pearson. Had a bill and he required counties to expand the number of drop boxes that they had. And in fact, his focus of that bill was to expand the number of rural um, drop boxes. So county auditors had been putting drop boxes that are open during the whole voting period, twenty four seven, and people can drive and drop their ballot, drive up to them and drop their ballots into it. And um, they really were. Uh, urban centric and I think what his bill did is it forced counties to think about the rural parts of their their uh, county and and get out into it and put those drop boxes in and they're widely popular of course since then now we have prepaid postage so it equalizes that now you can just put it in any blue mailbox and have the same uh, effect but I I think that uh, it's always important for our um, county officials and state officials to be aware that it's a very big state and a very diverse state and we need to be meeting the needs of all of our voters, not just um, not just the ones that are easy because they're they're tightly packed in a geog-
0: geographic area. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that's true. I I, I think I missed one election once. I think it was a primary when we had to go and vote in person. But, you know, there hasn't been an election where I haven't been able to fill out my ballot and drop it in a box. So, you know, um, I, I think it is a, a great convenience. I don't know about the fraud issue. I know that that's one of the big concerns nationally. Um, and I quite honestly am pretty ignorant with that. Do you think that there is an increase in fraud that you have to be prepared to handle or guard against with the mail-in ballots? Well, we have
1: to guard against uh, voter fraud in any in- environment, whether it's a polling place election or a-, a mail-in election, and I think that's one of the things our state has done a really good job at as well. Um, so one of the things many people have no idea, um, we check every re- signature on every return envelope statewide against the signature on their voter registration record. And if that signature doesn't match, we contact the voter and give them the opportunity to um, to you know, verify it, and that does 2 purp—that serves two purposes. One is just giving a second chance to the voter, but the second one is, you know, I guarantee you, if um, you know, if you received a letter from the county auditor that said your ballot had been returned and the signature didn't match, and you hadn't voted, you're going to get on the phone immediately and let them know it's a fraudulently cast ballot. So it's a security check as much as anything, and um. Our experience here in Washington is that, that we're not perfect. We, we do have some instances of fraud. Um, in 2018, for, uh, for example, we um, compared our voter history, so that is your, your voting record, uh, to anyone who voted in the 2018 election in Washington state to about 30 other states. And what we found is there were 142 cases of um, incidents where voters voted either more than once or voted on behalf of a deceased family member. And, of course, that's illegal. So we, um, we have turned those over to the counties who are working with their prosecuting attorneys. And if the prosecutors uh, decide not to prosecute those cases, we are going to turn them over to the FBI and prosecute them because it was a federal election. So we take it seriously. And I mention this because 142 is unacceptable. It's too many. But that was out of 3.2 million ballots cast. So is it perfect? Yeah. No. Is it rampant fraud? No. It's point oh oh four percent. You know, I think most banks would would kill to have that kind of fraud rate. Um, so you know, it's it's we're always going I to work to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No kidding. <laughs> well, and that's just it. Yeah. We you know, and and you know, it's we take it seriously because that was one hundred and forty two votes that were canceled out of legitimate voters. So it's not acceptable, but, uh, but at the same time, you know, life isn't, isn't perfect. And, and, uh, you know, we, we have a lot of things, safeguards to prevent it, but we also have a lot of measures to detect it if it happens and prosecute on the back end.
0: Well, and elections, I think is probably what we think of when we think of secretary of state, but I want to talk a little bit about uh, corporate and charities, um, Mm -hmm. uh, corporations and charities. Um, Having, um, well, our our, um, uh, Valley Broadcasting is a a charitable um, organization, so we file with the Secretary of State. I've been involved with several nonprofits that do that, and I've even created a nonprofit. And I have to tell you that, you know, and, and I readily admit that I climbed that big hill and rolled down the other side as an old fart many, many years ago. Um, so I am, not, I am not real top of the line when it comes to technology, et cetera, et cetera. And I tend to get cranky because a lot of things I go, what, are, what the heck is this? How come you know, there's nobody to answer a question? How come there's nobody to tell you how to do this? And I have to tell you that my experience with the corporate and charities filing is they are the nicest people. They will – you call them and you say, geez, I got this form. I don't know what I'm supposed to put here. And they will tell you what to put there. They will offer you materials. They will spend time on the phone with you. It's just a joy. It, nice. It's <laughs> a joy to, to get help from corporate sincerity
1: filing, you know. <laughs> nice. So well, I love hearing that. And And in the office of all of the feedback I get from people out across the state – Far and away, corporations and charities is the um, division in the office I hear the most positive feedback, and we've you know we've got an amazing crew of people that work in that division. I mean, I have an amazing crew across the state, but in corporations and charities filings, um, they've just done some amazing work over the last couple of years. We've modernized that system and tried to make it more user friendly and uh, and allow people to file online easier, which has really sped up the amount of time it takes to get your filings back, which is good. we saved our customers' money, so yeah, it's a, it's a win-win, and it's it's just the hard work of the folks in that division, um, and we're really proud of that. And we try to make sure that all of our customers are treated
0: well. Um, why do we need uh, uh, corporations and charities uh, uh, division? Why, what's the why was that created? What's the necessity for that under the uh, auspices of the Secretary of State?
1: Well, I think the idea of it is really to give. Um, Public access to information about corporations that uh, people might want to do business with, whether they are for-profit or nonprofit, and uh, th- it's a public record. I guess is the easiest way to sum it up. It's easy for people to come in and find out about the board of directors or get a copy of the annual report of that organization by going to the Secretary of State's page, and um, and that's really, I think, the purpose of the filing. You know, when when you're, I think, when you're a business or a nonprofit, like you were saying, that uh, it's just one. One more thing you have to do. You know, I have to file with Department of Licensing, then I have to file with Department of Revenue, and I have to file with the Secretary of State's office. You know, there are reasons for the tax side of it. There's reasons for the licensing side of it. But for the Secretary of State's role, it's really that public access. It's, it's about giving consumers that power to find out information about a business or a charity they want to do business with and make an informed decision before they give them money.
0: Yeah. Well, because uh, obviously people are asking for money, and if you have no way of checking mm-hmm. on that, you know, you you turn into that little old lady who gives over life savings to somebody right. from Nigeria. Oh, wait a minute. There I go talking about unemployment again. Um sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll that's never right. I'll, I'll never I'll never get anybody from the unemployment office on this show, will I? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, in keeping or not exactly in keeping, but similarly state libraries. Gosh, that's uh, you know what an odd it's it's almost like I I looked at the Secretary of State's obligations and and, uh, uh, job description, and I thought it did every other office in the state government and went, yep, you do this. You over there, you get this job. And then we're left with Secretary of State, and gosh, we got these four or five things. Let's just give them all to her. Mm <laughs> yep,
1: it's it's an odd dynamic. Um, I think part of it came out of uh, Ralph Monroe, who was Secretary of State from 1980 to 2001, um, actually 1981 to 2001. He he was uh, the lone Republican for many of those years in in uh, statewide office, and he was really trusted by the legislature and. Um, you know particularly past governors and I think there were a number of times where they had different operations where they just trusted him Uh, for example that's how archives really came to uh, to the Secretary of State's office as a responsibility was there was a point in I want to say like 81, 82 somewhere in that early time frame of his tenure where they were storing records from county governments and state government in the parking garage across the street from the capitol Just boxes of paper. And these were really important documents, historic documents, and they were under tarps and Ralph found out about it and he was outraged and so okay, maybe not outraged he was very upset and so he concocted a plan of first of all those need to come into the archives and he had that happen and they were out of space so he created this system of regional archives for uh, local government records that are now resting in the colleges across the in universities across the state so you know we have a regional facility up in Bellingham um, at Western Washington University we have one at um, Bellevue Community College, which actually it's, not, it's Bellevue College um, for uh, the region in in the uh, Bellevue Seattle area, we have one at Eastern Western, um, and and these these facilities really provide that access for local government records to um, the people in those regions, which is great. And those records are being protected in a in a really good way. And then you fast forward to my predecessor Sam Reed uh, when he took office in 2001, uh, the state was in a really tough budget crisis and the governor was going to eliminate the state library. And Sam Reed went and testified at a hearing and you know, slammed his fist on the desk and said, by God, this is the state's oldest cultural institution. We had a library before we were a state and on and on. And they said, you know, you're right, Secretary Reed, we're going to go ahead and give you the library. In fact, we're going to cut <laughs> your budget by half and good luck with that. And so I think a lot of these really eclectic <laughs> programs combine fund drives, similar th- threads. All of those um Interesting, odd programs ended up in the Secretary of State's office in some ways because um, the legislature um, trusted the, the office holder. I think if, if you look back now with a historical view, um, they, they trusted them even though they might have been in the other party. And I think that that's kind of a testament to my predecessors and, and kind of the culture that this, this office has had for a long time.
0: I don't know that a lot of people, like much of your, your position, I don't know that a lot of people understand the State Library and um, whether they have access to it. How does one learn more about state, our State Libraries and, and um, how they can help us personally?
1: Well, the State Library is really uniquely positioned and, and one of the parts of the office I knew very little about until I got in here. But um, the first and foremost thing is it's a research library. So. Um, any parents out there listening? If you have students in in you know middle school, high school, college, this is a wonderful resource for information about Washington history, Washington uh, facts and figures, um, any kind of reports. We have, for example, the um, federal documents. So all any federal document that's ever been published is in our state library, in, a, in it's a regional re- uh, repository for those. So people that are doing research reports, I always tell students this little secret. They can contact the state library through a program called Ask a Librarian, and that librarian will do their research for them. <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> that's one part of it. Um, but the other part is that the national—let um, me get this right now—the the Library of Congress and the you know the feds essentially will give money to state libraries because they're the conduit to all the local libraries. So we get about half of our budget uh, from the federal government and through a a program that I can't remember the acronym, what the meaning is, so I won't say it, but it's federal money that's passed through to the local libraries that helps them leverage um, these resources in ways that they just couldn't on their own. Uh, For example, a number of years ago, we got broadband funding uh, for rural libraries, and that money passed through, um, and I believe it was a Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation grant, and that money passed through the state library to those local libraries and allowed them to get uh, better broadband service for their customers. And so we can help those local libraries leverage money in ways that they couldn't on their own. And we can buy, for example, software that they can use that if they had to buy it on their own, it would be a few thousand dollars. We can buy it at the state level give it to them, and now that saves their budget to to put direct service. So um, that's kind of one role of the library. The second uh, role is the specialty libraries that I was talking about. So the Talking Book and Braille Library – We can provide books in a format that our readers can use. We have um, people with low vision or who are blind that um, we can send a Braille book to or uh, a book with large print or an audio book. Um, We have – and we record uh, books for that purpose. Uh, We have people that come into our studio and volunteer and record books for us to do that. Um, We also can put it in to – Pardon me? Yes. Good.
0: I used to do that. I read, oh, good Lord. I, I did it for Bellevue College and I uh, recorded textbooks. So, oh, my goodness. Um, it, it was Yeah, I know. Uh, just crazy, crazy. I mean, uh, I, I'm gifted with the, uh, I guess if you can call it a gift, with the ability to be able to pronounce words, even though I have not a clue what they mean.
2: Um, mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> <so> <laughs> <That's>, it, was, <laughs> it was a useful that's... skill and I channeled into doing textbooks, you know. Nice. Um, but it was extremely gratifying, you know, to do that. Mm-hmm. More more people should, I think, spend some time reading it because you're also reading the textbook as you're reading the textbook. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's mm-hmm. kind of a, a double benefit there. Um, but, yeah, I think that that's a very, very useful uh, service. You said you could we could send, that the library could send. Um, and the libraries do uh, send out a lot of stuff. They do a lot by mail. And I know that our current public libraries are not yet open Um, Mm -hmm. But is the State Library open? Is there still a staff there helping with uh, research, especially remotely?
1: We, well, we've been open uh, remotely uh, since the pandemic began. Uh, so, so all of the services have been provided. We just haven't had people on site. Thurston County is actually Phase 3, so we have started to bring back staff on site and are open um, with limited you know, services. But, but uh, we are providing those services online and through chat and phone as well. So um, the services are available for, throughout the office, not just in our library. Um, but yeah and the the Talking Book and Braille Library also mails out books um in the format that that people need and so uh that was actually our biggest challenge during covid is we had to send all of our workforce home we've just brought them back into the Talking Book and Braille Library which is up in Seattle and they are um you know working right now to get those books out because our patrons you know these are people that for a lot of them they are only connected to the outside world through these books so it's really important to us to get them the material so they can stay connected and can, can you know be, be part of the world, I guess. And uh, so we're, we're proud of the work, and, uh, and we're happy to be doing it again. But we have about 10,000 patrons, I think, statewide that we are um, mm-hmm. mailing books to and providing this service for.
0: And this is another area that I'd like to point out. It doesn't just serve those urban folks. This is this is a service mm-hmm. that really is helpful uh, for people who are in the more rural areas. Um, and and uh, you know I, that's uh, that's always what I'm looking for. You know what what's going to be most useful uh, for those of us who are not you know on the uh, downtown Seattle bus line. Um, wanted to talk a lot about the DV address confidentiality. Um, One of my areas of interest is domestic violence and intimate partner violence. And um, I I do a separate show on those issues, but um, the DV address confidentiality, I know from firsthand experience how useful it has been. There There are many women who have to leave a situation and leave no trace because of their safety. And I know from personal experience uh, from, from uh, a person that I worked with, in Snohomish County, a judge there made her reveal. She relocated to a different state, but she had to come back to court because there were minor children and custody was still an issue. And that judge in Snohomish County required her to give out her new address in court. Hmm. even though she was in the confidentiality program and that has always outraged me is part of this confidentiality program how is it administered by the state what is, is the state capable i mean judges judges have a lot of authority um uh, in their their domains i i don't know i guess i what i'm doing is just throwing this out there have you encountered mm-hmm. that before with the address confidential uh, confidentiality program and if so Um, Is this something that has happened more than just this one time that I'm aware of? Uh, Tell me about that if you can.
1: Sure. Well, the program actually started in the early 1990s, and um, it came out of a realization that one of the ways that perpetrators found their victims was, ironically, through public records requests. And what they would do is they would contact the local, you know, electric company or phone company and say, you know, gosh, yeah, I was just calling to see what record you have on file for the address for Kim Wyman. And by law they were public um entity, so they had to release it because it was a public record. And so this law was was really written to protect them from that. And so what they found is there were three record series that um, were really at risk, like I said, public records for um, addresses related to your utility bills, but also um, voting records and marriage records. So what the law really was designed to do is give these uh, survivors of domestic violence and stalking a post office box to receive all of their mail and that, that could be used as their physical address for any public document like their power bill and then they we protect their um, their uh, voter registration and their marriage records with the partnership with the counties. So the counties are part of our program, and if you are a member uh, or you're in the Address Confidentiality program, you go to the county auditor's office and you register to vote. They keep your record out of the database entirely. Um, they do the same for your marriage records. And so that program has been in place since, like I said, 1992, I believe. Um, it was when I first started working in Washington when it went into effect. And um, We currently have about 4,000 participants, over 4,000 participants, over Mm -hmm. half are minor children and um, you know we take it seriously because we have these people's lives in our hands so um, their mail is all sent to our office and then in, a, in an undisclosed location and then it's processed and then mailed to their actual physical addresses and we do a lot of things to make sure that those addresses are never in any kind of database that could be um, connected to the internet and that type of thing so we we have a lot of safety measures and we work with all of the community that um, provides service to to usually women but the the people that are in these situations and we have the law has been extended to judges and law enforcement personnel who may have uh, again be victims or or survivors of of some sort of stalking or or, uh, violence perpetrated against them and uh, so that program is has been working in the modern era it's challenging um, because it's not it's not a uh, witness protection program so if you're in the program for example and you own a house it won't protect your deed of trust that's recorded with the county auditor you know there are certain certain document types that are not going to exempt you from public disclosure and that's really the challenge i think and we're we're working with a, a group right now trying to figure out other ways that for example women who might want to buy a home how can they do that not have those records put in into the public domain so that their their you know their where they live is still protected and and it's a, it's a difficult struggle in in exactly what you're describing can happen a judge certainly you know has the purview to to be able to require someone to do that and, and it's that's frightening because you know a lot of a lot of these survivors are you know are terrorized by by their perpetrators and you know so we can't fix everything and we're going to keep working on the part we can control and and the the real success story of this program is in the you know the nearly 30 years it's been in existence uh, there's only been one person who was found Um, unfortunately it's partly because she didn't follow all of the guidelines of the program and um, she was murdered. But other than that, uh, we've had a really good success rate. And
0: so it, it changes people's lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it does. And I know it's a very successful program. I guess my, you know, it it seems to me that in an ideal world, there would be some teeth to it for judges that decide that they know better. Um, But Mm -hmm. that's just me. (laughs) Um, I noticed that you uh, list on your uh, CV that you're a cancer survivor. Um, uh, May I ask um, why you list it? And um, obviously, you don't mind talking about it if you have it there. Uh, And and how, how do you see that as fitting in with your basic biography as Secretary of State?
1: Um, well, it, you know, it just—it's—it's it's one of those things that when you join the club that no one wants to be in, you—you uh, you, it changes your world, and that happened. You're going to get me all teary. Um, it happened to me in 2017. Um, gosh, mm, I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh, it's okay. No, no, it's good. I, I'm here today, so life is
0: good. No, um, I was diagnosed. So let, me, um, let me just interrupt you for a moment because it happened okay. to me in 2017 as well. So. Oh my um, goodness. Okay. Yes, you—you you, you, you you know firsthand. You're yes. talking to a club member here. Yes, yeah. and,
1: and, uh, yeah, I was, uh, um, uh, yeah, I came off of a campaign, and, you know, you have a lot of stress that goes with that, and 16 was a pretty big year in, in elections anyway, and I wasn't feeling well, and it took about three months for my doc- doctor to actually listen and realize that there was something going on, and I was diagnosed with colon cancer. Uh, so stage four, um, <laughs> yeah, tough, Ooh. tough row. Um, um but the good the good news was the type i had was very rare and they knew how to cure it and so from the moment Ooh. that they diagnosed it uh this was in March of, I was first diagnosed in March, uh, I think March 10th of 2017. Um, it took about a month for them to do a whole bunch of really invasive and fun tests. And uh, the, the good news was that they were talking cure from the, the beginning. They were always talking in, in those terms, which was nice. And uh, so I went through um, six weeks of radiation and two rounds of chemotherapy. I was really blessed. I didn't lose my hair. I lost a lot of it, but didn't lose my hair. And uh, I got through it. It was, you know, know tough it was definitely a tough treatment by the end but uh you know three years later i'm still cancer free and if i hit the five-year mark with clean scans and uh checkups i will be cured so we're almost there it's it's uh been
0: mm-hmm. you know
1: as you i'm sure you know um you're you're in the you find yourself in the club no one wants to be in <laughs> and all you want to do is get in the club everybody's trying to get into <laughs>
0: so it's it's nice yeah, to be exactly. on the side of it yeah yeah exactly yeah, so. exactly um, and it is it is a club. I mean, it's kind of like I don't know. There, there are different clubs, I think, for women. I, I think my daughter had a baby this last year, and I said, "Welcome to the club," because once mm-hmm. you've had a child, it's different. Things are right. different. You view right. the world world differently. You behave differently. It's different. New club. So mm-hmm. you know, uh, we we are constantly, I guess, or or at least intermittently. Uh, introduced to these clubs, whether we want them or not, in our lives, and uh, yep. and what do you do? You know, if if you're like you, I suppose, and if you're like me, well, then you try and take it by storm and become president of the club. <laughs> <laughs> there you go.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah, it's a,
1: it's a it's a journey. I was really fortunate because you know when I was diagnosed very early I'd only told a handful of people I hadn't even told my parents yet or my kids yet and uh, um, I was talking with my inner circle of staff and one of my staff members pointed out that I had to make a public announcement and as you know I mean you're still trying to wrap your brain around what what I I have what (laughs) I, I have a mass I don't even know what that means you know and and so I I had the real blessing of um, being able to talk to Chief Justice Fairhurst and uh, Mary Fairhurst had, had been very public with her cancer diagnosis and her treatment and so I went and spoke with her and she gave me the best advice um, she, she said two profound things that changed my approach and my mental kind of space for treatment and the first thing she said was you know most people talk about it being a battle Now I would still argue it's a battle, but she said, I looked at it as a journey. You know, it's a, it's a path you would never choose, but now you're on it. So experience it and it's part of your life now. So experience it and there's going to be really good days and there's going to be really bad days, but uh, it's just part of your journey. So, so live your life. And, and I think that that mindset was really good to, to counterbalance the battle. And her point was, I know a lot of people who have died, they didn't lose their battle. And I was like, "You're right." <laughs> I thought of it that way, um, you know. And then, yeah. And then, and then, just her other her other point was, you know, to to give it to give the cancer to God. And at the time, it was like, "I don't understand what you mean." But okay, sure. And then when I got in treatment, I knew what she meant. You know, it's as you know, yeah. you go through treatment, and it's a struggle to get through the day. You know, it's like mm-hmm. you don't have the bandwidth. Um, you you don't have the bandwidth to deal with anything besides, you know, getting in the car, going and having the treatment and getting home. And you know, you just have to, to have the faith that you're gonna be okay. And you can't worry about the outcome anymore. You can't worry about whether you're going to survive.
0: You're just trying to get through the day. So you have yeah. <laughs> to stop thinking about you have to stop thinking about the dying and start yes. thinking and embracing the living. Yes, and that's a great way to put it. You know, and especially when you have kids because it's all about your kids. I, my kids are, are older now. Yours are still young. Uh, but I remember that when they handed me my first child, and I thought, oh, my God, for 18 years, I have to put this child first. And for 18 years, every all of this is different. Every single grocery I buy, every single action I take, I have to filter it through what's best for this child before I do anything. Mm-hmm. And I have to do that for 18 years? Oh, my gosh. Well, my youngest is pushing thirty. Yep, (laughs) and I'm still waiting for that to be over. (laughs) Yeah, that's the thing they don't tell you.
1: That in the parent manual they don't tell you that that never ends. Yeah, yeah, I I agree. Mine are twenty five and twenty eight now. So,
0: yep. Yeah, well, and I I have to tell you, I just I I I have uh, I had a surgery last week, and so it was in the time of COVID. And previous surgeries, I've had several in the last couple of years. And um, my kids have both been there and they've been wonderful. And, and, you know, I'm so glad that they were there for me. But I have to tell you, this surgery was so much easier because I could just hurt without, you know, trying to cover it up. I had, I could, just, <laughs> because they weren't yep. allowed to be there. And I, yep. I don't want to tell them that, but it was so much easier to not have them there because then I could just be the baby. If I wanted to be a baby, if I wanted to cry, mm-hmm. I could cry. If I want, you know, um, when your kids are there, you can't do that. And it doesn't matter how old they are. And it's yep, like, true. well, this is, this is kind of a rip. How come nobody told me about this? <laughs> when they were selling me them on the baby pictures and the, you know. <laughs> yep. So yeah. yeah, so you know, again, those clubs, those clubs that we we join as we go through life. Hmm. Kim, I've I've had such a good time talking with you. I always try to ask people, especially people in your your kind of position, um, because. I don't know what you do every day. All I know is what I read about. And I'm sure that despite how conscientious I try to be with my research, I'm missing something. What have I not asked you that you wish that I had asked you about, about your position or about you personally?
1: Uh, I think actually you've hit pretty much everything, uh, everything that I can think of. Um you know, it, it's just uh, state government is, is a really interesting uh, place because it is the ultimate in, in our democracy, you know, the three branches of government uh, working uh, in their silos and, and checking and balancing each other. And, and, you know, being in the executive branch is um, is just a different place. You know, most people, uh, when when I have, a good example is when I have fourth graders who come to the Capitol and, and do their visit, uh, they the question I always ask them is, you know, who's my boss? And my favorite part of doing that is the parents who all look down at the ground like, oh, my gosh, I don't know who that is. You know, and the kids always (laughs) answer, um, you know, governor. And then I get to say, no, the governor's not the boss of me, which I love to say because it's fun. And then they look at me really, you know, puzzling, and then the parents really look down. And then we go through the whole thing, you know, is it the judges? Is it the legislature? No. And then one of them will always go, is it the people? Like, yes. You know, I'm directly elected for a reason because I answer to you. You know, you're the boss of me, which is always fun to say, too, to fourth graders. And, you know, but there's a lot of seriousness to that. And, and it's, I think, one of the real strengths of Washington's uh, Constitution and uh, the brilliance of the, the populist framers that uh, wrote it is that they, they really believe that the inherent power of, the, of government is in the people the first, you know, yeah. the first article of our, uh, of our constitution is that all, all power comes from the people. And, you know, as a, a statewide elected official, I never lose sight of that. And I answer to all seven point, whatever it is now, three million people that live here and uh, represent them. And, and that's what, you know, every day you get to come into this grand building and it is a grand building. If you haven't been to the state Capitol, I invite you to come when it opens back up. Um, it reminds you of why you're here. And everything is way bigger mm-hmm. than you. And uh, been here a long time before you got here, and will be here a long time after you leave. So don't don't for a minute confuse the importance of your office with your importance um, in this process, you know, the importance is in the mm-hmm. office and, and it's, uh, you know, I, I am honored to be the steward of this office for a period of time. Um, but, uh, it doesn't make me any, any more important than I was, you know, eight years ago when I first got here, <laughs> it's, uh, I just have a really good <laughs> yeah. title and a really big office, but, uh, otherwise, you know, it's doing the people's work and, um, it's, it's an honor to get to do it. And, uh, you know, I, I treasure every day in this, in this role and, and look forward to doing a few more hopefully. And, it's just it's it's a great uh, great opportunity to serve your state.
0: Well, and I I think it's wonderful when you're telling about the, the children coming and then you're talking with them. When my daughter was in second grade. I took her and my son out of school for the day with their teacher's permission and took them to Olympia because I was needed to see several legislators. And the condition was, was that they each had to write a paper when they got back home about their experience. My daughter, whom I took to, you know, legislative meetings, I took her to see individual legislators. I took her to the cafeteria, you know. And mm-hmm. when she wrote her paper, the thing that she wrote about that was most impressive to her is that the ladies' bathroom had a couch in it. <laughs>
1: So I can I, I, I can do I one better that than that. What? Really, yeah. yeah. I, I, I I will share this because it cracks me up that you say that. When I first got into this office, and and I'm not saying this as a brag; it's just a fact. My my exa- my office that I'm sitting in right now is ridiculously big. It's beautiful. It's opulent. It was you know the capital was designed in the 1920s. It's just amazing. And people will come in for the first time and look at it and they'll be in awe and then I'll give them a tour and I'll show them things and then I mention, oh yeah, and that door over there leads to the, you know, the executive washroom, which is a nice word for the bathroom. And what's stunning to me is how many people are like, "Oh my gosh, you have your own bathroom." And it's like, "Are you kidding me? You're standing in this incredible room and that's what impresses you?" <laughs> Okay. (laughs) Exactly. Go figure.
0: (laughs) We are all struck by different things. Apparently, yes. It has been a delight talking with you. I hope that in your busy schedule... You'll find some time to come back and and chat with us in the future about what you're doing and some of the things that the Secretary of State Office is doing. I think it's really important for all of us to know that, you know, when we live in this state, it's not just a mayor, it's not just a governor, it's not just a president for that matter. The government and you know what we deal with and decision makers are many, many, many levels, and it behooves us to find out about all those levels and all those jobs and all those people who are holding those jobs. So thank you for coming on the show, talking about who you are or what the Secretary of State does, and I sure hope you'll find time to come back again sometime in the future. Well, I
1: would love to, and I appreciate the time. It's, uh, it's been a fun conversation. And thank you for listening
0: to Valley Talk. Join us again next week.
1: You're listening to Valley 104.9,
2: your station for Valley talk and information. Welcome to Happy News. I'm Daisy Oz. This is the second part of my declutter special, and we will be exploring how mental clutter affects our happiness. In our TMI society, as I like to call it, we have lots of mind clutter. I think many of us experience frustration with mental clarity, direction, feel behind or not enough time, confused and overwhelmed. These muddled feelings are directly related to the clouds of mental clutter, which are controlled by the subconscious mind. Not only in my first part of this declutter special does less stuff become less taxing on the mind, but also simplifying in the sense of prioritizing connections, social media, and digital time gives more space for passions, meditation, and creative time. Research is proving the reality of mental blockages that take up that space for more enjoyment. At the Princeton University Neuroscience Institute, they found that the overconsumption of digital stuff has the same effect on your brain as physical clutter. Anything that goes ping competes with your attention. This creates a digital form of clutter that erodes your ability to focus and perform more inspirational tasks. Subliminal messages are words and images conveyed in an unconscious way to the subconscious mind. Even visual cues that are flashed quickly in a few milliseconds have been proven to influence our thoughts and behaviors. This is very powerful. So, what we choose to watch is affecting our conscious choices. I know many people, including myself, who only choose positive programming to view because of this reality. There are hundreds of studies showing how the subconscious mind controls the conscious mind through impulses outside conscious awareness. And everyone I've read about or talked to who have simplified and reprogrammed their conscious mind have reported great positive changes in their lives, including more energy, physical well-being, and internal happiness. Hey, how about a few tips on mental decluttering? Study meditation and how research has proven its well-being benefits. I also have several podcasts on meditation. Get to know the research on the subconscious mind and how it controls our well-being, health, and happiness through habitual brain pathways. And take a listen to my new science talk show on rewiring the brain. I'd like to leave you with a clear mind quote. We are shaped by our thoughts. We become what we think. When the mind is clear and empty, Joy follows like a shadow that never leaves. Gautama Buddha. I'm Daisy Oz. Thanks for listening. And I want you to be happy. Check out my archive shows and more at DaisyOz.com. Happy News is produced at Daisy Oz Productions in Chilala, Washington. My theme music was provided by John Bartman.